You're listening to the Faith Roots Audio Podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Welcome to our teaching, The End from the Beginning. We're in episode three. We're talking about this thing that God does and has been doing since the very beginning. He proclaims the end from the beginning. That's what the prophet Isaiah says it, and other prophets say similar things. In uh, Isaiah 46.10, he says that God declares the end from the beginning. It doesn't mean that he declares uh, prophecies and says from the very beginning uh, future things are going to happen in such and such way. He actually is saying that the events of these early days are meant to shadow things that are coming in the future. Uh, let me show you from the New Testament where there's a counterpart verse. It's, it's Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Uh, Paul says that all of the laws, all of the dietary laws, the feast days, the festivals, and the Sabbaths, he said, are shadows of things to come, but the body or the substance is Christ. Now, let me explain that, and I'll do that more than once during this series because it's such an important idea. I want it to be rooted deeply in your thinking. Anytime a being comes from great light, he will cast a shadow and the shadow will arrive before him. There cannot be a shadow if there is no substance. The substance or the body, King James says body, New King James says substance, the substance is Christ. He's the one that casts the shadow. So we see shadows of the Messiah. We see shadows of his operation well before we see the total fulfillment of it. That's what he was trying to say. Now, Peter wrote to Jewish believers who thoroughly knew the Old Testament scriptures. And uh, he didn't write to the Gentiles like Paul. Paul probably would not have written uh, quite the same way that Peter did because their target audiences were different. So Peter was writing to a group of people who knew the Old Testament scriptures he is now quoting Psalm 90 and verse 4. He does this in 2 Peter 3.8. But he is a little bit more literal than Psalm 90 and verse 4. Listen to what he says. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. He says this in the context of, of the second coming of Christ. And so he is saying, if we are looking at the second coming of Christ and we want to know how come it's been so long, he said it's because God's days are 1,000 years long. So that's something to keep in your thinking. The Sabbath is a picture of the coming of Christ. And it was written... For our time, these things were written so that we could understand them. Uh, people who were reading these things 2,000 years ago, and the Scripture itself will tell you this, and I'll read that to you in a minute, they couldn't understand it. The, the unlocking of the mysteries happened at the end of the age, or it happens at the end of the age. All right, listen to what he said in 2 Peter 3 and verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Now he's saying, I'm reminding you that you may be words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. That says he was talking to the Jews. Gentiles would not have known anything the holy prophets said. And of the commandment of the, us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he is now saying, we have added revelation to what the prophets had to say. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, meaning that there are days that are later, that are last, that are more near to his coming than the first days. There will be scoffers who will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, these scoffers 
point to the many missed predictions of God's people. So Peter is nailing something here. He's saying this is going to happen. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? Why would they say that? Because untold numbers of teachers of the Bible and students of the Word will have said, well, we think he's coming in 1914, or he's going to come in 1988, or he's going to come in the year 2000, or he'll be here in the year 2007. All of these things are erroneous because the Scripture teaches concerning the rapture of the church that it is imminent, meaning that it could happen at any time. There is no way of knowing the exact day or the hour. That's what the Scripture teaches. We don't know the day and the hour. We know that the play is beginning when the curtains open and we see uh, props on the stage or when we see uh, the ticket office open up and the doors are opened and ushers begin to seat people. We may not know the exact moment or second of the starting of the play, but we know it's getting close because there are certain things that would happen right before the play begins. And so that's where we are. We're seeing the stage being set, and we are very near to the fulfillment of a number of major prophecies, but particularly the one that we all wait for, and that is the second coming of Christ. These scoffers will mock the idea that he's coming soon. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? And uh, they do something here uh, and counter the idea that Christ is coming soon because they will say, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, if you read right over this, you're going to miss it. This is a doctrine this is a false doctrine. It is an idea that has taken root in our culture, in our society. In fact, it started at about 1850-ish, and it's been stronger and stronger and stronger over the decades, and it's called the doctrine of uniformitarianism. The idea is there is no catastrophe, there are no sudden changes, the earth has been in existence for millions of years, it has rolled along and any changes have been very subtle, nothing uh, ever cataclysmic happens, it is not something that, uh, that, that uh, comes about in sudden changes. And Peter says that's not so. And then he goes on to say they're ignorant of this one thing. They willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. He said they're ignorant of that, but he said they're not just ignorant of it because it can't be seen. They're willingly ignorant of it. There's tremendous flood evidence. Uh, something happened about 10 years ago. I thought it was fascinating. There were a group of scientists who said, we think there was a universal flood on Mars. And maybe you've heard that or seen that statement. Well, Mars doesn't have uh, a very large amount of surface water. In fact, what does exist is at the poles and it's in the form of ice. So there, uh, there is no uh, real discernible uh, body of water on, on the surface of Mars. Yet the scientists were saying, we believe there was a universal flood on Mars. The same people would laugh at the idea that a universal flood happened on Earth, which is covered three quarters by water. But it, it could not have it couldn't have happened on Earth, but it could happen on Mars. That's ridiculous. This is a willful ignorance. It is a refusal to believe evidence. There, there's a whole setup of of, of study which is designed to make everybody think the world is extremely old, and the evidence doesn't point to that. And the more we discover things in uh, with the space telescopes, with cosmology, the more we discover things about DNA, population dynamics, we realize that the world is a lot younger than we think it is. And so these people have been willingly deceived. Now, this is above my pay grade. I'm not going to get into all the different ins and outs of why we believe in a young earth and that God created the world versus evolution. I do believe that. But I do want to say this. When it comes to prophecy, the apostle Peter said, these people who deny it do so under the banner of uniformitarianism, and that's what gives them boldness to be skeptics, and that's exactly what we see in our day. All right. 
Then he gives us the verse that we read at the beginning, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now, he says, if the Lord has delayed his coming, and if it seems like it has taken a long time, he's waiting for something. Second Peter 3, nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, this scripture says that God is waiting for the best time, the time where the most of the harvest can be gathered, the time when it will be easier, when the tools are available. He's waiting for a time of harvest because God's plans concerning man do not have to do with seeing how many people he can send to hell and, and, and write off. That's not what God wants to do. God loves people. When you recognize the suffering that went through Jesus' body, how he was tormented in his crucifixion and passion, unlike any other man who came before him. Uh, Isaiah 52 says his appearance was marred more than any man's. He was unrecognizable as a human being. It was a terrible thing to see. When you recognize that God did all of that, it speaks of love so great that God is not looking for opportunities to send people to hell. God's a lot more patient than I am. I got to tell you, there are some public figures today that if I could push a button, mash a button, and wipe them out, I would have done it a long time ago. God has that button, and he doesn't push it. He is amazingly long-suffering. And so we see here that he's waiting for the optimum time. Why? Well, let me give you three reasons. Number one, this population of earth in the last days explodes exponentially. I don't know. It's a hockey stick. It goes along at a certain rate, and then boom, I mean, it goes up. It, the curve is unbelievable. Uh, there were never more than a billion people on planet earth till somewhere in the middle 1800s. And uh, so for the first time in the history of the world, we had a billion people on the earth. Uh, by early 20th century, we reached about 2 billion in the 20s, 30s, right in through there, maybe 1940. By 1960, we hit 3 billion people. I remember seeing that on bulletin boards when I was in elementary school. We are now past 7 billion on our way to 8. It's unreal. There are just so many more people. And so there is a great opportunity to reach people unlike any opportunity we've ever had. That's number one. Number two... Uh, more people are within reach today. In other words, we have the greatest technology in communication than there has ever been. There has never been a time where people could get to different parts of the earth. I had lunch uh, and uh, spent an evening with a couple of our missionary friends about two weeks ago. They were getting ready to fly to Indonesia. They had just come back from India. In fact, I think they were going to India also on this trip and this halfway around the world, and they have a tremendous impact there. And uh, it's amazing how many people they're able to reach. In fact, there was a time they had so many converts that the Indian government banned them from coming back into the country. Now, that has since uh, been taken away, so they do have opportunity to go in. But they do amazing things, and, and it's amazing what opportunities lie before us today. I'm not saying that all the work is done, but we have made huge strides in getting the word to people in this time. And so we have travel, we have communication and technology. Listen to what Daniel said about the last days. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. This is what uh, the angel told him as he finished off the prophecy. But you, Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book until the time of the end. In other words, the angel said, Daniel, your book won't be understood fully until the end of the age. At the end, it will be understood. And he said, this is what will happen. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Knowledge is exploding. It's amazing what we know today that we didn't know five years ago. I want you to think about the last 150 years. 
the last 150 years have been incredible in terms of advancement. And so we are living in a time unlike any other time in history. We've got an explosion of population, an explosion of technology, the ability to travel. This is opportunity. All of these things are coming together. And God is going to see that his work is done. Now this is how prophecy ought to impact anybody who studies it. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen this way for a lot of people because a lot of people become gazers. They want to sit and look at signs and talk about when Jesus is coming back and they want to do nothing. Well, the same Jesus who told us to watch for his coming also said, occupy, make yourself busy, get busy, do things, uh, have a program, have a plan until I come. And so seeing then that he is coming soon, we ought to be thinking about reaching more people, being more effective, planning more carefully, being more aggressive and reaching outside of our four walls and, and making this truth available to as many people as possible. That ought to be our attitude. And the reason is because we have the opportunity. Daniel tells us this is how you're going to know it. There will be increased travel, increased communication, and, and again, we see great population. Well, that's all the time that we have for this segment, but we'll be back in a minute with more. See you then. Welcome back. We're in episode three. We're talking about the end from the beginning. We're looking at a number of things and we're laying some groundwork before we really get into all of the stuff that's happening in our current time. Uh, but uh, I want you to be thoroughly acquainted with these concepts before we get there. The Sabbath does not mark any planetary event. In other words, on a seven-day cycle, nothing happens. There is no significance to the seven days from the standpoint of the sun, the moon, or any of the stars. Uh, it was given by God to foreshadow God's program, and this stamp was very effective because this seven-day week is is known all over the earth. I didn't say that every culture always had it. I'm just telling you that it is the dominant flow of a week uh, around the world today. God ordained the Sabbath in Genesis, but he confirmed it as a teaching tool later. In other words, we see the ordinance of the Sabbath in Genesis 1, uh, but later God made it a part of the law, made it a part of the Ten Commandments, and it's a teaching tool, and uh, that's what we see. It's not just an observance, but it was a teaching tool. And here we see in Leviticus chapter 23, the feasts of the Lord, we're going to read the first three verses, uh, it includes the Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord. Keep that word in your mind, feast. We're going to get back to it in a minute. The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Keep that word in your mind. These are my feasts. Six days shall work be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Now the word feast or festival is from the Hebrew moed, which means an appointment or a set time. Now that by itself doesn't necessarily uh, tell us anything about a prophetic sim significance about the different feasts, but the next word does. Convocation is the Hebrew mikra, which means rehearsal or recital. The feast days were given to be dress rehearsals for real events that were to come. And we can see that there are eight of these given in Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, seven of them happen on an annual basis. One of them happens on a weekly basis. And what we can see is of these eight different things that we're to observe, these feasts or convocations we're to observe, these rehearsals, four of them have already been fulfilled. Four have yet to be fulfilled. Now, the weekly Sabbath then is a dress rehearsal for God's program on the earth. 
Of the eight rehearsals described in Leviticus 23, it is the only one that is a weekly observance. So God had people observing things on a short-term basis and then on an annual basis. And I think that's good leadership. I, I think uh, all good leaders uh, would do that with their people. Will they have special things that happen on a regular uh, weekly occurrence? And then there are things that happen on an annual occurrence. Uh, these four were fulfilled when they were fulfilled, Passover, unleavened bread, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Pentecost. When they were fulfilled, they were fulfilled to the day and the hour. Uh, they were exact. There were things that happened that were identified and connected to these symbols that were the literal fulfillments of what they were pointing to. They have all come about. We're not going to talk about it in this lesson, but we will get into the next one. Now, the Sabbath is connected to a time frame, uh, and that's what you see, uh, to a repeating time frame, and it is the seventh day or the seventh 1,000-year period of man's dominion on planet Earth. Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. Now, if man's work week was six days long, it's highly likely that his dominion was to last for six prophetic days or 6,000 years. Now, we will see if that's the truth or not. But one thing is clear, man's dominion will not last forever. There is a time when it will come to an end, and Christ has promised to rule and to reign on planet Earth. So this would tell us that man was given the ability to operate for a set time frame. That is a great picture of a lease. The Lord owns the earth, but apparently he leased it to mankind. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. So God never gave ownership of the earth to Adam, but he did give him all authority to operate here. That is a lease. And in fact, when you come into uh, the Israelites' possession of the land of Canaan, you see something unique about land ownership. They weren't to sell their land. They were to hold on to their land. Now, they might not have been able to work their land. They may have, maybe a guy had all daughters for two or three generations, and so they, they, they married off, but they didn't give the land away. The land stayed in the family, and they might lease it. And so that was very common in Israel. Now, the earth is the Lord's. The demonic spirits that Jesus encountered more than once in his ministry understood that there was a set time for their operation. And you see this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 28-29. When he had come to the other side, being the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no man could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? They knew who he was. They, they recognized him. They recognized his face. They knew he was a being that they had encountered before. And they were saying this in accusation. You know, uh, the angel Gabriel told Mary, uh, Your son will be called the Son of the Most High. And it's interesting, really interesting to me, that you didn't see Jesus' followers calling him, calling him the Son of the Most High. It was his adversaries, the demon-possessed, often called him the Son of the Most High God. So uh, basically the angel said to Mary, your son is going to be accused of being on this planet illegally. They will call him the son of the most high God. And that's exactly what happened. You know, when uh, Paul and Silas were in Philippi and they were going about their ministries there, the, the girl who followed them about, the demon-possessed girl, uh, said about them, these men are the servants of the most high God. And you always see that. So uh, there was a challenge here. So these demons weren't worshiping him. They were challenging him and accusing him of being on the earth when he wasn't supposed to be here. And they asked him this question, have you come here to torment us 
before the time. In other words, they knew 2,000 years ago that the time of their torment was not yet. It's going to come. And they knew he was here early. He didn't torment them. He didn't remove demon spirits from the presence of the earth. Uh, But he did exercise authority over them when he came in direct contact with them. Now, Christ refers to the expiration of this lease. Uh, His coming was not the set time. The first coming was not the set time. Listen to Luke 19, verses 12 and 13. He says this about himself. This is a parable about Jesus himself. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now, if this parable is about anyone, it's about Jesus. And so he says he is not going to return until he is appointed king. Well, even though Christ died on the cross, and even though he is the rightful king of the Jews, he has not taken up that kind of authority yet. He is going to. So he called ten of his servants, Jesus went on to say, and gave them ten minas and said, put this money to work until I come back. So again, this is a picture of his coming again. And he is saying, I will come back, but not until after I've been crowned king. And so he is uh, giving us a picture of the whole program of what he's doing. Uh, But his subjects, Luke 19, 14 and 15, goes on to say, his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. And so there are people on planet Earth who absolutely hate the idea of Christ ruling and reigning on planet Earth. This even in the church. You have pastors who ridicule this idea that Jesus will literally come back. We'll see, won't we? Uh, but he was made king and he returned home. He will be crowned king before he returns. And when you read about his coming to the Earth, riding on a white horse in Revelation chapter 19... He's got the crown on, and he's got on a crown, a many crowns. And so now he's obviously been crowned king as he is coming back into the earth. Uh, When the time of this lease expires, the rightful owner of earth will begin the proceedings to reclaim his property. And I want to read to you, this is something that you would know if you had grown up in an ancient Hebrew culture, if you understood it. Uh, This is very much the way that a lease would have been handled. So let's read Revelation 5 verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. This is like someone in a court of law actually asking for a certain person to come forth. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? This is not a religious thing here. This is a legal thing, and this is a legal procedure. It is a legal matter. The property is being reclaimed. The rightful owner has been absent and is returning, and he has to present proof of his worthiness. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. So I wept much, John said, because no one or no man was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Now that's interesting, isn't it? That it was a man that they were looking for. This couldn't be just anybody. They didn't just turn to God immediately and say, well, it has to be Jesus because he's the son of God. It had to be a man because the lease was given to Adam. Adam was the one who got the lease. God is the owner. So Christ is coming as the rightful agent being a man. He was all man, but he's also coming as God, the owner. And so I wept much, John said, because no one was found worthy to open and read. But then he goes on to say, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb 
as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. What made him worthy? For you were slain, and you've redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And you've made us kings and priests to our God. That's something that was happening there at the coronation. And we shall reign on the earth. Now, it is this suffering as a man and Jesus being sinless and rising from the dead, all of those things made him worthy to take this scroll. This is the lease, and he's coming back to pick it up. It was something that Adam would have had in the beginning, but Christ is coming to pick it up because Adam gave the lease to someone else. And uh, that someone is going to be dealt with very harshly. What you see here is every class of being, these angels, these, these living creatures, one having the face of a lion, one a man, one a, an ox, one an eagle, they all, every living creature is there. The angels and the saints who were gathered, they all gave witness to the fact that Jesus was worthy to open that scroll. Now, at this moment that we're reading here, Satan's dominion and his usurpation, taking something by false pretense, will have passed. This is what the devil is. He's a, he's a thief and a usurper. Uh, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. He is operating and the God of this age, but God didn't put him there. God didn't want him there. Uh, he was given that place by man. Ephesians 2.2, 2, here's another title that he has. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So Satan is the god of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He took this authority by lies and deception. It was given to Adam when Adam sinned. He became subservient to sin and to death. And so Satan became the god of this world. He gave this authority to the being Satan. We look at what Adam did in Eden, and often we think of it as just a sin. It was not just a sin. It was high treason. He changed sides and took what he had and gave it to the enemy of God. That's what Adam did. Now, the time of this event in the future is unknowable. We don't know the time. And I believe it's soon, but we don't know. Matthew 24, 36 says this, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. That's what Jesus said. But he didn't say that to the exclusion of all other intuition about the date. Now listen, Hebrews 10, 25 says this, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now that's Hebrews 10.25. Let's get some context. What day is that? What is he talking about? What is the thing that he had pointed to, the writer of Hebrews, earlier? It's here in the previous chapter, the very last verse, verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So that's the bodily return of Jesus Christ. That is a day. And we see that day approaching. We don't, may not know the exact day, but we can see it is getting close. So 
the lease is going to be taken over. The dominion of man and the dominion that Satan stole is going to be ended. And Jesus, the Messiah, is going to rule and reign on planet earth. We will rule and reign with him. That day we do believe is approaching. And that's what the Sabbath points to. There's more, but we'll get to it when I come back. Well, we're talking about the Sabbath day and how it foreshadows the seventh 1,000-year period of man's time in earth. And we see in that seventh day that there's something special that happens, that Jesus the Messiah comes to rule and to reign on planet earth. And this particular um, day is called, nicknamed, the Day of the Lord. And so I want to read to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, the Apostle Paul said in verse 1, But concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need that I should write unto you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, not, not us, the world, when they say peace and security or safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. They shall not es escape. Jesus talked about labor pains as well. And we are seeing those labor pains beginning right now on our planet. And there are a number of them. Not going to get into that. But the point I want to make here is this. The Apostle Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, you really don't need me to teach you this. You already know it. I'm just going to remind you of it. Now, that's interesting to me because today in most churches, uh, that could not be written because most people in the church today have no clue what the day of the Lord really is. They cannot explain. There's some who can, but most have not been taught these things. If this was important for people to know, uh, it should be important for people to know today. It was important to the Apostle Paul. He didn't get to stay with these people forever. He didn't spend 20, 30 years in one church. Uh, but in his short time of being with these churches, he made sure that they understood this idea called the Day of the Lord. And it's a very important idea, and it appears dozens and dozens and dozens of times in Scripture, so we ought to know about it. Now, he says that this day will not overtake you uh, in dark, because you're not in darkness. It won't overtake you as a thief, meaning that you and I will begin to see it coming. Uh, we may not know the exact moment of its beginning, but we will not be surprised when it happens. Why is that? Because we are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night, nor are we of darkness. So he says, we have the ability to see this day coming. So they had a thorough understanding of this concept. It will catch the world totally and completely off guard. Now, how does it begin? Well, it begins with a seven-year period called the tribulation. The first three and a half years are tribulation, but the second three and a half are great tribulation. They're way, way worse. And it is during this time that God is working, Christ is working to filter the world and to sift the world. If the purpose of this was to wipe out people and send people to hell, Jesus could do that with the snap of his fingers. He doesn't need seven years to do it. He would just step in and get it done. But he doesn't think that way because he loves people. He turns up the pressure on planet Earth. And a lot of the judgment that we see are God just stepping back and permitting people to reap the things that they have sown. And so they will begin to experience some of the attitudes that they've held and some of the decisions that they've made. That will be a good part of their judgment. But in this time frame, there will be a number of people who will say, 
I believe Jesus is right. And, and I'm going to tell you this, there will be bold witnesses. There will be people preaching. They will not be the church of this day because the church of this day is going to be taken out and raptured. That happens earlier. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through the end of the chapter. We're not talking about that in this particular moment, but the day of the Lord is a dreadful time. The Thessalonians had been lied to and they had been taught that the day of the Lord was actually already happening because they were experiencing some heavy persecution. Paul says, no, it won't come. Not yet. And he tells what has to happen. But the day of the Lord is this seven-year period followed by a 1,000-year reign of Christ on planet Earth. So... I don't know that that seven-year period is technically a part of the thousand-year day or if it's an intertestamental period where it's a little sliver, a tiny little sliver of time. It's just, you know, a couple of minutes to reset the stage perhaps. But nonetheless, there is a seven-year period spoken of, and it is the tribulation, and it is followed by a 1,000-year time of Christ ruling on planet Earth. Now, these pressures that people will feel will be especially intense for the people of Israel. And it will bring them to a place, to a crossroads, where they will choose, once and for all, who is your Messiah. And uh, on the last of the tribulation, they will call out by name and ask for Jesus. And that's what we see. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7 says this, Alas! For that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, Jacob is the name of Israel, but it's a name that God used to describe him when he wasn't being obedient. So he didn't say it's the time of Israel's trouble. He says it's the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. So the end is he's going to be saved. There, there's something good that comes at the end. So when that first seven-year period is over, the earth will enter a thousand years of peace. And let's find out why. Let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. We'll start reading in verse 1. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. And this is after this great battle of Armageddon. And he said, I saw the angel having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast that would be Antichrist or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we have this 1,000 year period of peace on the earth. Isaiah gives us a little bit of detail about this great period. I want to read Isaiah chapter 11 and uh, verse 1. There shall come a rod from the stem of Jesse. A rod is a symbol of judgment and authority. A branch shall grow out of his roots, meaning that it looks like that the kingdom of David is over, but just when you think it's all done, this tree trunk sprouts a strong new branch and the Dominion and the kingdom is restored. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now, people ask often, what are the seven spirits of God? There they are right there. Uh, they're in Isaiah 11 too. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor." 
and shall decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Now look at verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. Think about that. And the weaned child shall put his hand into the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water cover the sea. Here's Isaiah 65, 25. More insight into this. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Now, this is a thousand years called the millennium, meaning literally a thousand year period. Christ will rule on this day, the seventh day. And this is why the Sabbath was given to be observed at the end of the seven-day week. First six days, man has his dominion. The seventh day is set apart uh, to represent the coming program of Messiah. Now, the early church did their worship of the Lord on the first day of the week. And it wasn't that they disavowed the Sabbath. In fact, I'm quite sure that many of the Jews, not all, but many of the Jews who were also believers probably observed the Sabbath on Saturday as well as they did on Sunday. That would be okay. Uh, Paul tells us that you need to have a Sabbath. It doesn't matter what day it is. You need to have a Sabbath. Don't get legalistic about the day. That's what he teaches. So uh, we see pictures of this all through the Scripture. Solomon is a type of the Messiah. His name literally means Prince of Peace. That's his name. And uh, he's different than David. David was a man of war. God did not let David build the temple. It was Solomon who built the temple. God wouldn't let David do it because he wasn't a proper type. He shed too much blood. And so God didn't want a man of war being uh, representative of the coming Messiah in the age of peace. That's Solomon's job. And so Solomon is a picture of Messiah in that there were no major wars as long as he was king. There was a great period of peace during his entire 40-year reign. And his throne was on a platform that was the seventh level high. There were six steps going up to that platform. And the seventh level was where his throne was. So that's a picture of the 6,000 years of man's dominion and the seven 1,000-year reign of Christ. This is 1 Kings 10, 18, and 19. Uh, listen to Matthew 17 and verse 1. I think this is the most fascinating one in all the scriptures. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. My bet, scripture doesn't say, but my bet this is Mount Hermon. They were in the neighborhood. We know that in the previous chapter. And he was transfigured before them and Moses and Elijah, they came and talked with him. And so they saw him in all of his glory. They saw what he would look like in the kingdom of God. And uh, Peter didn't want to leave. He said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. So this is a picture of the seventh millennium and Christ being king for a thousand years on the seventh day. Now after six days, Jesus did this. The wedding feast at Cana in Galilee is another picture because one of the themes of Christ being crowned king and being the ruler is that he is the Messiah with a wedding. And so John 1.19 is where it starts. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? That is speaking of a particular day. It didn't happen every day. It happened on a certain day, and this is where it's recorded. That's John 1.19. The next day, John 1.29, John saw Jesus coming toward him. So that's day two. Uh, John 1.35, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So that is day three. And then the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. That's John 1.43. That's day four. 
And then John 2, 1 and 2 says, on the third day, on the third day, well, it's linked to these first four days. So we've got a seven-day week, but on that third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And so we have this picture of a wedding celebration on the seventh day. And so that's one of the great themes of the day of the Lord. So the seven years of tribulation are days of trouble and wrath for the world. But when that's over, we will go into a time when Christ rules and reigns on planet Earth. Where is the church during all of this? The church, it is my firm opinion, that we will be lifted out of this world and taken to be with the Lord and uh, we'll probably get into that in this series in detail so that you're clear about that. But this, the church is not caught up in this seven years of tribulation. Uh, people say, you know, I think we need to have to go through some purification. When, when you say that, you, you need to think about this. Uh, you're saying that the blood of Jesus couldn't purify you, that you have to suffer in order to be totally pure? What about your grandma that lived in a very peaceful time during her life and did not experience a great deal of suffering? Does she not get to go up in the rapture because uh, she didn't suffer enough that she didn't live through a great time of persecution? See, you get into all kinds of crazy doctrine when you take away the fact that we are made right by the blood of Christ. Whether we're worthy ourselves or not, it doesn't matter. It is what Jesus did for us that makes us worthy to go to heaven when we die or if we live long enough for him to come back in our lifetime. So what we see is that God has given us these amazing symbolic pictures and they show us his program in the earth and the Sabbath is one of them. Now, Leviticus 23 is an interesting chapter. We're going to get into it in the next lesson. That's coming. We will detail the seven annual feasts. Four of them have been fulfilled, and they were fulfilled on the exact day that they were to be observed symbolically. And so there's something we can learn from that. Don't miss that teaching. I'll see you then. I want to thank you for watching our podcast today. And if you really liked it, would you please give us a little thumbs up by clicking on that sign down below. And then I would encourage you to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss any of our future podcasts because they're all going to be good. And if you would like to support us financially, either with a one-time gift or recurring gift, you can do that by clicking on the link below are going to MyFaithRoots.com. Thank you so much for watching this program. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today.